Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season 10, episode 2, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the 2020 haunted house drama thriller, His House based on a story by Felicity Evans and Toby Venabal. I think that's how you say his name. Sure, Venable. Yeah. Yeah. Venables. Very fancy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was written and directed by Remy Weeks. It stars Wunmi Masaku, Chopin Derisu, Javier Bote, and Matt Smith. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings can be found in the show notes of this episode. Okay, are you still here? Great. Then let's get this morning started. Uh, Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Bol and Rial, a married couple from Sudan, flee their home in search of asylum with their daughter in tow. As they make their way across the stormy sea in search of safety from another warring tribe, their daughter is lost tragically after falling from the boat during a storm. Haunted by the memories of what happened as they fled for safety, Rial and Bol have come to terms with their new, unfamiliar life in a derelict apartment given to them by the UK government. But as the traumas of the past come to light and dark secrets about their escape are revealed, they must fight to hold on to the hope that they can begin anew despite the horrifying events that haunt and surround them. Ooh, thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You're welcome. Okay, so let's get into the production. Uh, So according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, his house was developed by British production company Starchild Pictures, run by producer producers ed king and martin gentiles um in august of 2017 it was announced that remy weeks would direct the film from a screenplay he wrote now the weinstein company filed a lawsuit against star child pictures claiming they had backed out of an unsigned distribution agreement so by march of 2018 the weinstein company had actually backed out of that lawsuit Probably because they had other lawsuits that they were too busy losing. Boom. Roasted. (laughs) Sucks to suck. Yeah. (laughs) According to Jazz Tenke, quote, cinematographer Joe Williams' main goal for the new Netflix horror film was was to get as close as possible to the actors to show the horror that came from their own traumas. Damp wallpaper peels back to reveal black holes in the walls with visions of horror within. Rial believes a witch has followed them from Sudan, and Williams stays close to capture that feeling of being trapped and isolated because they 
can't go back to Sedan. And I actually really liked that part of the film was that there were a lot of close-ups and a lot of close-ups of like faces, of the wall, of the ghosts. And normally I feel like that could be kind of jarring, but I feel like it really, really worked well for this film. Mm-hmm. It was very like claustrophobic. And it, for sure. it, it like got you up close and personal with how each person was feeling. I really loved it. Yes, same. Okay, so according to Wikipedia, his house had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival on January 27th, 2020. Simpler times. <laughs> uh, Netflix acquired distribution rights to the film and it was released on the streaming service uh, on October 30th, 2020. According to film critic Robert Daniels, quote, his house is a terrifying debut that breathes that breathes a fresh voice into the haunted house subgenre, unquote. And according to his Dark Sky Lady, quote, it's a film that shows the horror of being a refugee with the guilt of the past and the fear of losing oneself when we are forced to assimilate into a new world and culture, unquote. So, yeah, Dark Sky Ladies, um, uh, little comment there. That's basically what we're going to talk about mm-hmm. throughout this whole episode, like in a nutshell. Yep. Okay, so let's get into the Bechdel test. Does it pass? Okay, so yes, maybe. It does pass between Rial and her doctor, Dr. Hayes. However, we never learned Dr. Hayes's first name. So I think some might argue that it actually doesn't pass, but I'm I'm going to say yes, it does, because the quote unquote rules of the Bechdel test are that it has to be between two women who have names. I don't think it, it ever like specifies that it has to be their first name, mm-hmm. right? I don't think so. Anyway, let me know what you all think about that on our social media. You can grill me in the comments. <laughs> If you don't agree. (laughs) So let's talk about Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? Uh, So the original story was co-written by a woman, but I don't want to overshadow the fact that Remy Weeks, who is Black, is the director and screenplay writer of the film. That's Mm -hmm. just as important, really. Um, was the final girl or main character a person of color? Yes. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Mm. Okay. So why a story about refugees? Well, according to Remy Weeks in an interview with Tom Nicholson, Nicholson asks, why focus on refugees from South Sudan? And Weeks responds, I wanted to tell a contemporary story of people moving to the UK at this moment in time. And being from a mixed background myself, I wanted to have some kind of mirroring of the kinds of conversations I've had growing up in the UK. South Sudan South Sudan seemed like a really important thing that's happening right now and also something in terms of the conversations I heard from various African and Caribbean communities I'd grown up with that I felt like I could connect with, unquote. Okay, so 
Abby, you are currently taking a class on this subject, right? Mm -hmm. Of like the refugee experience. So could you please uh, talk to us about like the refugee experience according to women? Yes, I would love to. Um, Yep. So I'm currently taking a class called Refugee Wellness, and it focuses on a lot of the issues and disparities that refugees face, as well as the challenges of everyday life as they resettle in safer homes. So shout out to my professor, Dr. Bargineer, for such an enlightening class. And I wish that everybody could take a class like this because it's so important. But... Back in 2017, Refinery29 put out a really good article detailing some experiences that refugee women had in the UK, and I wanted to share some of the excerpts because it's something that I think we should all be talking about as intersectional feminists especially, and something that deserves everyone's time and attention. And I just want to do a quick trigger warning for this section in particular because we do talk about sexual assault. Um, So if you want to like fast forward a little bit through this, we will be talking about that here. But the article says, Most women who come to the UK to seek asylum have experienced sexual violence. Some have been tied up and gang-raped, beaten, burned with cigarettes, cut with razors, subjected to female genital mutilation of themselves or their daughters. Two-thirds of women seeking asylum in the UK under their own name, not with a husband, are rejected on their first application. Wow. Yes. Often, this is because they don't have sufficient hard copy evidence to prove the persecution they have suffered. The, or, but what? But, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look I know. Look at the cigarette burns on my body. Look uh, at the genital mutilation. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, it's pretty outrageous. Um, <sighs> They go on to say, or because they don't have the language to explain it. Oh, no. Yeah, so side note that I want to... I am really, really passionate about this just because... Uh, Working in the mental health field and also being a very, very passionate about rights for everyone. Like, these agencies and people that are helping refugees or processing these applications need to have the proper interpreters. And they need to have people who are educated in the language. And Even if they're not, like, fully educated in the language? Because I get how, like, jobs like this are, like, short-staffed. I can see how that would be an issue. Mm-hmm. But maybe learn, like, key phrases or, like, key, like, triggering words. Like, words that they can help describe, like, abuse or whatever. Correct. Oh, my God. Because the issue that I think a lot of people have is that in their own particular language, they don't... Um, I know that there's a sociological or a sociolinguistic term for this, but they don't have the word that matches what we would say in English. Ugh. So, like, if there is a word for um, some kind of sexual violence that happens, like a particular act, they might not have that word in that language. <gasps> oh so it's my like God. so they are literally like failing to understand what these people are describing. So it's like they go through that entire process of explaining what has happened to them or what is happening to them and it's not getting across. Like people are not registering that like, "Oh, this is like 
this is terrible crimes against humanity that we need to be paying attention to. So it's very frustrating all around. So the article goes on to say, or another reason might be because they don't have the confidence to explain what's going on. So London-based charity Women for Refugee Women was set up to support women claiming asylum in the UK, challenging the injustices they face at every stage of the process, from being locked up in the women's detention center, uh, Jarl's Wood, to being denied critical legal advice on how to collect and present evidence to support their applications to further the, to the further barriers to education and the right to work. The charity also publishes research documents using testimonies and case studies about what the women have been through and how they are treated on entering the UK to inform parliamentarians of what needs to change. So there is hope because of organizations that have been set up like this. So Mm -hmm. it's it seems like it's a very slow going process, but it is gaining momentum. So there is that. That's good. Yes. Um, The article goes on to talk about a couple experiences of um, women who are refugees. And again, I'm going to say trigger warning again for some of the stuff that I'm about to talk about. Um, One young woman in her 20s made the journey from Ethiopia through Libya, where she was trafficked and imprisoned. She experienced extreme sexual violence while she was there. And then when she got on the boats to Europe, she had an awful journey through the Mediterranean and the boat behind her sank. And she knew people on that boat. She was then in the north of France for a while. And when she smuggled her way into the UK in a lorry, she was actually pregnant and she miscarried in the lorry on her way to the UK. Oh, my God. So you can see the layers and layers of trauma. Now she's living in Wakefield. She's isolated and she's finding it very difficult. I think she felt that when she came to the UK, everything would be all right. But she's facing even more challenges in terms of trying to claim asylum and trying to prove to the authorities that she's deserving of refugee status. She wants to access education too, which is very difficult. Uh, Another woman I met was persecuted in the Democratic republic of the congo she was expect she was suspected of being involved with the rebels and so soldiers came to her house took her away and put her in an unofficial prison where she was tied up and gang raped eventually a guy who cleaned the prison helped her to escape she paid a smuggler to take her out of the drc into the uk where she faced further barriers and was locked up in detention bringing back all of the memories of what she had gone through Around 2,000 women who seek asylum in the UK are locked up in detention. Immigration detention is indefinite. It can last days, weeks, or months. When we met this woman, she was very distressed. She had PTSD and she kept reliving the trauma and going back in her mind to what happened to her in the prison in DRC because she was so scared of being locked up again. But she has since been released and has received refugee status here and is now rebuilding her life. So this is something that his house actually touches on pretty well, I think. Um, Obviously, their situation is a little bit different than some of these women that we mentioned before from this article. Right. We don't really see the detention part of their journey. 
mm-hmm. we know that they're there. We're, they're there for like a few weeks, right? I'm trying to remember. Um, I, or are they there for I a few? I think so. I know. I think they mentioned how they're there for a long time in that detention part, like waiting to find out if they can like have a house or something yes i mean it's uh, it's when i was watching this film i was like oh man i feel so bad for these people stuck in this center because it's like there's nothing to do there's nowhere for you to go people are being so cruel and it's like they they it's almost like the people who run these detention centers don't believe that this is something that could happen to people that, like, mm-hmm. people come over here and they're, what, like, faking their experiences? Nobody is faking this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, it's so frustrating. Yeah. But anyway, so seeing things through Rial's eyes in the, in a film like this is something that I think is truly important from a social perspective. And I, when we think of refugees, we think of the obvious things like they need food, shelter, they need to be employable, so that they can, you know, create a new life for themselves. And the trauma that enshrouds the harrowing escape that so many people have to make. But what about, like, these very specific issues that arise for women who are refugees? And what makes them vulnerable? And mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, the journey isn't over for women, very specifically um, women and children, who come here with their family or spouse, and they are still bound by these culturally harmful traditions, and they get trapped in abusive situations with the only people that they know, because mm. it's very isolating. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this leads well into our next topic, which is um, the question, are women truly free? And something that really strikes me about this film is the narrative about literally all of the women in it, except the one doctor that we see. Um, well, yeah, the one white woman. Is right. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, which is, uh, it, it's not funny, but it is funny because it's like, oh. <laughs> it's funny. Be- you laugh because it's uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. what else am I going to do? <laughs> right. I cry, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty much all of the women in this movie are victims in one way or another. All of the women we meet have been through a lot of hardship. And a lot of it happens at the hands of men. <laughs> well, right. We have Rial, who is not only in danger of death and rape in her home country, but also she's harassed in England. Oh, my God. Oh, my and God. And we'll I talk know. about that in a second. But, like, she also discusses, like, with her doctor that her scars, which were self-inflicted, are actually common with the tribe that was at war with her own tribe. And she wears them. So she doesn't become a victim of them as her because her family was killed by them. And so she decided to mark herself with the warring tribes, just the markings on her arm. Mm-hmm. So uh, she no longer belongs with her tribe because she wears the other tribe's markings. And she, she neither belongs to the warring tribe because she's not originally from them. And like she like has her uh, her original markings too on her head and she also doesn't belong in england mm-hmm. so um her husband bowl like so badly wants the house to be theirs but really he wants the house to be 
dun dun his <laughs> because mm-hmm. he has his own personal issues and so Rial has no home she has no house and Anaya is stolen from her mother by bull so that they are able to escape and she dies and Anaya's mother loses her child and ne- will never find out what happens to her. Mm-hmm. So I would say that even though Rial is the real hero of the story because she kills the apath, um, and then she that in turn makes the house in England their house, right? Mm-hmm. The ghosts of all the immigrants, and not just immigrants from Sudan, but you see... Uh, the ghosts of immigrants of children from other countries, men and women from other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the immigrants who never made it there. And they live there in this house with her and Bull. So I don't think that she is free. Rial is not free. And mm-hmm. Naya and her mother obviously aren't free either. And the women who Rial worked with, they're... They are arguably free in death, I suppose, but they truly weren't free in life because of the war that was happening. And we'll talk more about PTSD and survivor's guilt and ghosts of the past towards the end of this episode, but I wanted to add something real quick. Um, I just remembered a line from the film that I didn't mention here, but um, Rial says that she's been speaking to Naya's ghost. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know if you remember this part, but she says, she tells me I need to watch out for you. Mm, And mm -hmm. she says that to Bull, her husband. She's like, she's telling me I need to, like, to be wary of you. Yes. (laughs) You know, it's just like, it's like, oh, God. And that's kind of like when Bull starts really spiraling is after she says this, like, right after she says this, that's when, like, the house kind of crumbles like in he has like a vision of the house crumbling around him and he's sitting at the table alone eating yep and he's in like the middle of nowhere and uh yeah i feel like that's sort of the beginning of of him really realizing that he is kind of a dick yeah and obviously he has his own trauma his own terrible trauma but he hasn't confronted it yet no at that yes. point I think that is so interesting, too, and something that I want to bring up real quick um, that kind of goes along the lines of talking about PTSD, which, like you said, we're going to do later in the episode. But Rial has those scars of this warring tribe that killed her family, and she's looking at those every single day, and she's facing that every single day, and it's there as a physical reminder. So she's kind of... um, She's kind of in tune with that, and she's in touch with that fear and that trauma every day, whereas Ball, he he doesn't have a reminder of that anywhere, and that's no. the way that he likes to keep it. He likes to just kind of, like, sweep it under the rug. He tries to get rid of all of the mementos that they have from their home. Yes, and he Be- is because he is he is very aggressive and he attacks it and he's he's very tormented by it. He has like the most intense hauntings in this film, 
And Rial actually sort of is very calm and accepting of everything. Mm-hmm. And she, because I think she is used to more trauma, she has like more deep rooted trauma and she has survived more than Bull, I think. Yes. Just because she is a woman. Yes. She, she talks with the ghosts. Like, she kind of sits with them. Like, they kind of hang out behind. There's this one scene in this film that is the scary, one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. And it's her sitting on the couch and she looks at the wall and the ghosts are behind the wall. They're in the <gasps> yes! wall. And they're peeking through the holes that Bull has made. Yep. Oh, my God, that scene is so good. It's so scary. It and scared the shit out of me. Yes. I watched this movie alone and it yeah. scared me so bad. <laughs> I was like, it is that? a beautiful visual. It is so scary. And yes. they are behind the wall and they're just staring at her. And she's just like, oh, hi. You know, she just sits there. And um, Nia, like, um, puts her hand through the the wall and like drops the necklace basically. Mm-hmm. So uh, the hauntings that Rial experiences are very mild compared to Bull who yes. is literally attacked by the spirits. And now they explain in the film that he can't be hurt by them. Right. But that doesn't that doesn't um cuz he like says like you're just a bag of tricks or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um but he's still tormented by them when he's forced to look at them yes because there's a scene right where he has his arms pulled behind his back and his head is being like positioned to look at his at the little girl that he kidnapped literally kidnapped yeah and she was killed because of him because he so badly wanted to get out of there and he can't like face it but anyway uh. yeah so the women in this film might not be free but i mean the men kind of aren't either <laughs> Bull isn't yeah. either. And uh, even though the women aren't free, they're almost accepting of their fate while Bull is having a hard time accepting it. Yes. Which is so, um, in a way, kind of hilarious to me because it's like, it's like all the women in this film are like, oh, is this your first rodeo? Like, <laughs> we're all so used to... and. I am in no way comparing my situation to that yes. of a refugee because Absolutely. I have I'm an extremely privileged white woman and I have no idea what that kind of trauma is like. Absolutely. But yes, I know what you're saying. I think there is this universal thing as women that we all can be like, mm, yeah, well, this is how we're treated literally all the time. And uh, now that you've gotten a taste of it, you don't really like it. <laughs> like... The taste of, like, what it's like to carry this trauma around inside of you and, like, always having to be looking over your shoulder and wondering, like, what's going to happen next. Um, It's it's kind of funny to me. But um, what I find really frustrating when I watch this film is that Rial seems to always be cleaning up after Bull. Right. His actions have direct and dire consequences in her life. Mm-hmm. And here she is in a place that could 100% afford her more freedoms and opportunity. And I mean, like, opportunity that, like, to be safer as she's, like, trying to go out and, like, make a living or make friends and that kind of thing. Um, right. 
you know, she still struggles to fit in with the people around them in the UK. But Mm -hmm. it's almost like no matter where she turns, she is trapped in some way or another by the constraints of her marriage or the rules of being um, an asylum seeker or the guilt over her husband's actions. And she had nothing to do with it. Like, (laughs) she literally was just like, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) Well, and what fucking sucks is that this whole war was started by men in Sudan. Yes. And so it's like, even though Bull, who is a man, is not responsible for it, it is men who are responsible for her suffering. Correct. Yes. So. Yep. Mm. Anyway, that brings us to the next topic. Um, Whose house? His house. (laughs) So this is a snippet from an interview Remy Weeks did with Tom Nicholson. And Nicholson asks, one of the main themes in his house is trauma. And particularly Bull not being able to process it and refusing to engage with it. Mm -hmm. What does it say about being a man? And Weeks responds, part of why it's called his house is there's this feeling for men that we have to be the ones to shoulder burdens but not admit to how much pain they can cause us. I guess his character reflected a need to suppress our emotions in the hope that by suppressing them, they'll just go away when usually the opposite happens. Uh, And that's the end of the quote. And um, I would say, yep, that tracks. Okay, so... Here is a little side note that just popped back into my head um, yeah. of something that I read a couple of years ago. And everyone, please forgive me. I'm totally pulling this out of my butt. So I don't remember who <laughs> the author was, um, but she is a woman and she practices yoga and she works a lot with both men and women or people who identify as men and women. And she wrote this essay a really long time ago, so it's a little dated as far as, like, gender goes. But she basically said that men, their, um, like, sexual organs are on the outside of their body, and that mm-hmm. leaves them feeling extremely vulnerable. Mm. Interesting. Whereas, so it becomes extremely hard for them to talk about their emotions and process their fears and stuff like that because of this vulnerability but women our sexual organs are inside of our bodies and we are able to for the most part protect them from harm so we have an easier time being vulnerable and processing things and being able to talk aloud obviously this is not the case for everyone Because not everyone who has a penis identifies as a man. Not everyone with a vagina identifies as a woman. Um, But I just thought that that was really interesting to think about in terms of, like, men who identify as men with, like, a penis and stuff like that. Um, Like, it's so kind of mind-bending when you think about it that way and how everything kind of works in conjunction in that way it's almost like gender roles are not healthy no <laughs> no it's which, bad <laughs> which is what happens with bull like i a bull obviously identifies in this way this character yes so i can see how 
even though, yeah, this is a, a bit outdated, I can see how if you are heter- a hetero gentleman mm-hmm. <laughs> who identifies as male and has a penis, I can see that if this is your identification, you would be like kind of trapped. You would feel trapped in this role. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> And it's like all of the pressures that you face culturally and it's so it's so universal it's not just like the white patriarchy here in our country every every maybe not every culture but a lot of cultures experience this in some way and it's so toxic yes it's awful yeah and you know then there's the apeth who is coded as being male um, who is also claiming that this is his house, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the apath is not really real, right? I mm. believe that the apath is just a manifestation of Bull and Rial's trauma and guilt, since he comes from a story in Rial's village, right? Mm-hmm. The story being that, you know, a thief took the home of a night witch, you know, an apath, and uh, then this thief was haunted by it forever. Mm-hmm. And like I mentioned earlier, Rial does kill the apath and becomes basically the hero of the story. Uh, but I still don't think she can claim it as her house because even though the apath is dead, her husband is still there. Yeah. So, like you said, Abby, like, she's constantly picking up his messes. Like, she has killed this thing that represents their grief and their guilt. And she conquers it. Mm -hmm. And it's still not her house. It's still her husband's house. It's still his house. I can't stand it. (laughs) Yes. And even though, like, they say at the end, like, it's our house. It's, you know, like, they claim it as a couple. Yeah. I mean, the title, I feel like, says it all, really. And, like, I mean, Kay Austin Collins of Rolling Stone thinks that the his in his house is actually England. Mm. And according to Collins, the question of whose house this really is does, in fact, have an answer. And that answer is Britain. It's England, not Sudan, the couple's ironclad colonial present, not their bloodstained past that initially forbids them from leaving that house. It's England that smash fits them into a system of assimilation and self-annihilation. Surely a barren, crusty corner pocket council flat offered courtesy of the empire has haunts of its own that rival anything that's arrived with these new residents, unquote. Wow, that's incredible because you know what? Mm-hmm. All a lot of the devastating effects that we're seeing of these warring tribes and these places with high conflict and stuff like that, it, it, usually, from what I understand, it's not coming from within, it's not an internal conflict. It's something that's been influenced by outside forces. And we all know, if we look back through history, that England has one of the worst historical presences of colonialism. Yes. And enslaving people. They (laughs) literally invented racism. (laughs) 
Yeah. Like, England's, England's history is covered in bloodshed. Yeah. And for it's, sure. It, the, the layering to this film is so brilliant in that way. Because yes. this could have easily been about refugees in America, but I think... Not that we are free of any blame. No, no, but we're we, we're also the worst. But, <laughs> but we are a young country with our own issues. Where England is an old country yes. that has that started a lot of fear and horror and terror in the world. Yes, <laughs> that's a great quote. Yeah, I read that and I was like, Pfft. I was like, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. Oh man. And um, I want to add this, another piece from this article by Kay Austin Collins as well, um, that compares the movie Get Out to his house. Oh, yes. A movie like Get Out announced in its very title, the desire that movie makes you feel on behalf of its hero. Get out of that house. This movie has the additional powerful dilemma of forcing you to reckon with whether a couple that has already gotten out of the Sudan has anywhere else to go. At one point, when the mania of the house drives one of the film's heroes to lock them in, the gesture comes off as a bit brash on the one hand and logically on the other, unquote. Mm -hmm. So there's two sides Two, there's these two stories with black voices on screen and behind the screen. Interestingly, one is American and one is British, yeah. which is kind of interesting, right? Yeah. Um, both are about haunted or dangerous houses, but two very different messages come from these films. You want Rial and Bull to quote unquote get out. But at the same time, they literally cannot. In fact, as uh, Kay Austin Collins says, they purposefully trap themselves in and face what is in the house. Yeah. Where the characters and get out do everything in their power to leave and never look back. Mm-hmm. So Rial and Bull, they leave one horror and are just thrusted into another. And the house that they need to get out of is actually the only place that they can call home right now. Oh, that's so brilliant. Because It's amazing. Yeah. Like, I will tell you why. <laughs> because, like... <laughs> I'm ready. I'm listening. <laughs> you heard it here first. When we think of situations like this, um, I think especially as white people... And a lot of the times as white people who want to extend a helping hand to people in these situations, mm -hmm. we don't stop to think about the cultural differences that people are experiencing. So our right. like very Western brain goes, oh, these people need to get out and they need to seek therapy for the traumas that they've been through and they need to like take care of themselves and be like very wholesome and like mm, like w one with themselves that's not always how people from other cultures perceive it sometimes right. the way that they do it is to actually like sit there and face those demons or and really it might not even be a made-up story 
these like demons and witches and stuff that they talk about in their local folklore might be metaphors for this stuff, like the trauma and the guilt and the fear. And instead of... It's real to them. Yes. Just because it's not real to us, because it's not our culture and the way that we see these things does not mean that their experience is not valid or that they are, quote unquote, crazy. Because it's like when Bull walks into the office of the man that's helping him and he's like, we have rats. And the guy's like, oh, you have rats. He has to say that because that's the only way that he'll be able to relate to this white man that's trying to help them. Mm-hmm. Because he can't walk in and say, there's a witch in my wall. Yeah, there are witches right. and ghosts in my house and right. they're haunting the shit out of my wife and I and it's not safe for us there. Right, right. Because like we were talking about before, we also have those language barriers. Yes. So they might not be able to say like, there's there's an apath in my wall. Yes, they that's can only just, say there is a rat in my wall. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So that's why I love this movie and I love how it really does a good job of explaining that to the audience without mm-hmm. making them feel like without it's like very how do I want to say this? They're not being like oh these people from this culture this is how they talk about this and this is how you need to perceive it it's very subtle and it's very yes. respectful i think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i just had to say that i had to go on that little tangent because... no that's great because that's wonderful because the next topic of this uh of what of this discussion is the myth and folklore that's presented in his house and <laughs> perfect I know. And there's this great essay on Horror Homeroom, which is one of my favorite horror um, websites. They have like great articles on there. And they had a great guest writer, Dr. Mark Fryers. uh, And their article is called We Lost Her When We Crossed the Sea. And I'd like to share some of it with you right here. Um, It's linked in the show notes if you'd like to read the entire thing. But um, according to Dr. Fryer's quote, the horror which engages with well-established tropes of the haunted house genre also engages with African myth and folklore. But by having the couple constantly haunted by their past and taunted by their future, his house avoids the trap of many Western horror films that mystify and exercise the cultures of indigenous races as an excuse to torment white suburban families. So think like the uh, burial ground in Poltergeist, Pazuzu's Mm. Middle Eastern and African origins in The Exorcist, or further back to the colonial anxiety of W.W. Jacobs' The Monkey's Paw. The couple see visions of masked figures, something in the broken and tattered walls of the house, and a tall witch, which they recognize as an apath or night witch but who targets Bull more blatantly. And then we find out as the story progresses why. 
uh, the chronic displacement is more keenly felt by Rial and is especially on display in a sequence in which she is forced to leave the house for the first time to attend a doctor's appointment, wearing a bright red jacket, which makes her stand out even more against the pallid and subdued tones of the housing estate. She wanders down endless streets that look the same and through alleyways and back streets that position her as one lost in the Minotaur's labyrinth. Oh, yes. That was my thought when I was watching it, too. Yes. And I saw in another article, somebody mentioned that she very much resembled Wendy Torrance in The Shining Mm -hmm. when she's running through the maze with her son. And she's also wearing like a red jacket. Yes. So one of the first things he finds and I'm guessing, and it's Bull. One of the first thing Bull finds in the walls of the house is a piece of rope, which, when pulled, seems to be covered in kelp and sea moss. In Lovecraftian tradition, death and apocalypse are visualized as a return to the depths of the ocean from which our an- ancestors sprung. Bull reminds Rial that they had to make sacrifices to start a new life, and that included the death of their quote-unquote daughter. We lost her when we crossed the sea, he reminds her, this real-life tragedy serving as the fulcrum for the supernatural horror. In real terms, the depiction of the sea in his house functions as a link between supernatural and corporeal horror, reminding the viewer of newspaper images of poor drowned children washed up on foreign shores, dangerous and overcrowded boats crossing the Mediterranean and the English Channel, and waves of people for whom sea crossings are, alas, desperate gamble. The sea is a historical and top topographical insecure and topographically insecure a space that constantly ebbs and flows and a space as much of death and disaster as one that promises new beginnings unquote oh wow that's brilliant so lots of african uh indigenous greek and uh and then lovecraftian which is ironic imagery in the myth and folklore that's presented in this oh my god yes that just okay i just got that that it was ironic because (laughs) oh because lovecraft was a racist asshole yeah (laughs) Yeah. very uh what is what is the word that i want to use xenophobic yeah afraid of other people yes oh my god so let's talk about the horrors of assimilation Yes. Um, Assimilation is something that is synonymous with refugees and immigrants and displaced people. Um, I'm not sure if everyone had the same experience with me when we learned about immigration in school. But and I went to a public school, but something that was really highlighted through those lessons was how difficult it was for foreigners to assimilate to American or Western ways. I'm sure maybe the history is a little bit more different over in the UK, but this is just speaking from my experience. Um, As a country that touts itself as, 
you know, a melting pot, I find a lot of irony in how important assimilation has become in regards to accepting foreign people in our country. If you can't, there's this attitude that has been perpetuated by years of intolerance that you pretty much have to get the fuck out of this country. And this is how we end up losing a lot of diversity and how people have a diminished sense of self and culture. When you lose your roots or you try to mask who you are and where you come from, you lose pieces of yourself. And this is a huge problem for those who face displacement or are forced to flee their homes. I mean, Americans did that to the the Native Americans. Uh, yes. A whole entire cultures and languages are gone forever because we mm-hmm. sent children to these schools, right? To yep. just be literally be beaten into submission uh, and to be as <laughs> as white as possible. It's very, very traumatic and sad. Yeah, I mean, there was an old white dude, and I forget his name, but it, he said something like, what was the quote? It was like, um, kill the Indian, save the man or something. Yeah, he was the one who started the school. Yeah. I, I know who you're talking about, and I can't remember for the life of me what his name is, and maybe that's fine. He should, who shall not be named. No, like, fuck that guy. <laughs> right, but like, he started it in the States, and I believe the, whoever started them in Canada came and saw what we did in the States, and they were like, this looks great, and they started it in Canada, and Canada, surprisingly, uh, their schools were much worse, and that's where they found yeah. like the two hundred plus bodies of children as young as three years old buried. Oh my god, disgusting! Yeah, and it's it all disgusting. over. It's all over. And how many like have we not heard about? You know, <sighs> yeah, it's, it's disgusting. And it yeah, makes entire me so cultures sad. and languages erased, and and children dead. It's it's. It is liter- it is a an American horror story and a Canadian horror story and an English horror story. Like it is a horror story. It's sad. Wow. Well, okay. <laughs> so I have a quote here for now that we all are uh very bummed, which I guess we should be. We deserve it. Yeah. So according to Odie Henderson, quote, uh, the caseworker Mark uh, and his cronies, I love that, (laughs) keep stating that this particular house is bigger than their own houses and their voices are hinting at a dark sense of entitlement. Oh, my God. I fucking hated that. I hated watching that happen throughout that movie. I was like, shut up. (laughs) Yeah, I know. More blatant is Mark's repeated mantra that his newest reports should, quote, be one of the good ones and assimilate as quickly as possible. One of the good ones is uttered multiple times in his house, giving the sense that this type of microaggression will be at the forefront of the film's haunting. But director Remy Weeks regulates it to the background, keeping it in the corners of reality rather than informing the supernatural. Instead, these ghosts are symbolic stowaways on the migration. Their refusal to go back from whence they came is as adamant as Bull's yearning to stay in England. Unlike him, they do offer a scenario for their acquiescence. 
Bull repeatedly tells his wife that they are not going back. His desire to fit in results in him using an advertisement on a clothing store wall as the basis of his new fashion look. We catch a security guard following Bull in that store, a callous reminder of Rial, telling her husband that full acceptance will never be possible. She sees this when some black British teens who scream for her to go back to Africa after she asks them for help. The boys prove the old adage that not all skin folk are kinfolk, unquote. So even if they were to quote unquote assimilate, it wouldn't matter. Yeah. It wouldn't. And she sees that where Bull doesn't. It's <laughs> it's just like a catch-22, really. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> so let's get into the final thought. PTSD and ghosts of the past. According to David Ehrlich, quote, some people have seen too much to be scared of the dark. Some people are too haunted to live in any other kind of house. But the ghosts you bring with you are always more frightening than the ghosts that belong somewhere else. And it's only a matter of time before Rial starts to question Bull's mantra that we will be new here, born again, unquote. And going back to K. Austin Collins, quote, In real life, there's PTSD, survivor's guilt, the pain of assimilation into European culture, whose own history of colonialism bears with enough distance to encourage collective amnesia on the violence from which the couple has taken refuge. But refugees do not simply leave. They bear with them the scars from where they came from. And here, those scars are as much physical as they are spectral. They're alive in the things this couple carries, a baby doll and a beaded necklace reminding them of things lost on the way here, unquote. Ugh, it's something that I want to point out here is that these people, and not just these specific characters in the film, but refugees in general, they come with almost nothing tangible to hold on to from their past more times than not. They are bearing so much trauma from what they witness and experience, yet have nothing to remind them of the good things from their home. It's just memories. Now, imagine leaving a place you've grown up in, leaving your friends, family, all of your belongings, art that you've made, certificates that you've worked hard for in school, photos that you've taken and acquired of your family and friends, all gone in the name of violence. Imagine leaving your partner behind and not knowing if they'll survive and you have nothing. No clothes that smell like them. None of your belongings from your wedding. Maybe you had to pawn your wedding ring for a safe passage. All of the mementos from your children when you gave birth, those are now overridden by traumatic memories because you have no comfort or familiarity to cling to. And as someone who really strongly advocates for mental health and studies the profound effect that this kind of stuff has on the human mind, I realize how difficult it can be to deal with your trauma if you don't have that sense of comfort. And for Rial and Ball, those few belongings were both a comfort, but they were also an embodiment of that trauma. So it's it's really hard to strike a good balance of finding comfort and also holding on to something that is detrimental 
to your mental capacity to heal. Right. And uh, so Jamila O'Hara says, quote, indeed, just as the film's title suggests, Bull and Rial's house might never truly feel like it belongs to them as their past will always be with them. But it is their acceptance of this fact and their decision to keep moving forward regardless that makes it their own, unquote. Yes. Um, something, too, that I really want to discuss that was brought up um, just a minute ago is survivor's guilt. Because yeah. this plays a huge role in this film. I mean, it's like one of the central themes to the whole I- thing. I feel like I saw somebody say, like, on YouTube or something when I was watching videos about this film, um, somebody said that this film was the embodiment of survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which I thought was really interesting. Yes. And it's so... Uh, people... When when you hear survivor's guilt, what is the first thing that you think of? I think uh, for a lot of people... Um, it's kind of like how people associate PTSD with combat veterans. It's mm-hmm. like the first thing that pops into their head. So a lot of people think like, oh, survivor's guilt only happens if you are like in a war-torn place and you lose your buddies and you think that like, oh, that should have been me. I think that not a lot of people realize that um, survivor's guilt can be pretty much anything. Like, oh, I, people get into car wrecks and they're like the only survivor, right, of a, just of a car wreck and they have survivor's guilt. Yeah. Yep. Or people that form bonds that are going through cancer treatments that, you know, they're like, they're older and they meet kids and stuff that go in for chemotherapy and then the kids pass away and they're like, oh my God, like that should have been me because that kid was so young. Like Mm. survivor's guilt is something that permeates every culture and it's so beautifully addressed in this movie because like technically there was no relation to their quote-unquote daughter who died at sea right and um i think in a lot of ways these characters would have questioned like their survivor's guilt even if they hadn't kidnapped her you know? Right, because it was an entire boatload of people who died. Yes. And their family and friends in the country. Like, I mean, Rial hides in the cabinet and all of her other friends, her women, her female friends, they're all dead. Yes. They'll get shot and killed, yeah. Or, like, if they had been allowed to get on the bus and then they were driving away and they saw her standing back there with her mother and they were like, oh, shit, like, that maybe maybe that should have been her and her mother on this bus instead of us. So I think right. that any way you slice it, these people are dealing with survivor's guilt. But mm-hmm. um, there's a really good article that I found online from ABC.net, and it talks about survivor's guilt, and they say um, survivor's guilt is a really big issue, and this is in regards to refugees, and that often comes with a sense of shame about being the person that has survived and has these opportunities, says Carmel Guerra, who is the CEO of the Center for Multicultural Youth, an advocacy organization that runs programs with young people who are newly arrived in Australia. She says young people can grapple with complicated and confusing feelings when arriving in a new country. 
families that have left countries that were war-torn, where there's been persecution or a really high degree of poverty, many of them carry a significant feeling of grief and often a high degree of trauma, particularly around incidents that happened back home, she said. And now, with the extent to which social media gives you instant information, it can get worse for young people because they know exactly what's going on and can have a sense of, why me? And that is another, (laughs) just another layer to add to this whole thing is that, like, if people have access to social media and they hear about the news of what's going on back home, I can't imagine how that must make them feel. Um, but I mean, this is seen a lot in Real and Bull and a huge part of what the apath represents in the film, at least that's how I see it. Like survivor's guilt is an incredibly tricky piece of trauma to navigate because the effects are so lasting and it cuts so deep. In hindering their ability to start new, Real and Bull have to figure out a way to come to terms with that grief and kill it so that they can live. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if anyone listening has experienced anything similar to this. Um, I mean, likely you have. But I think it speaks a lot to the human condition because we all go through different degrees of this. And I love how it's portrayed in this film because it opens up a bigger conversation about current events while allowing people to relate their circumstances and emotions to what these characters go through. Because although this film is, you know, it's obviously fictional, a lot of the instances surrounding the lives of Rial and Bull are very, very real. Trauma, as we all know, (laughs) is on the forefront of mental health care these days. So seeing how this, like, quote-unquote monster is being portrayed in films like this gives horror such a leg up in my opinion because it's monstrous effects are real and horror makes us feel that so all in all i think horror is a genre that is truly shedding a light on the current state of how we deal with ptsd and how those monsters are a metaphor for very real feelings like i feel like the world is kind of starting to catch up in that sense and mm-hmm. horror is not just seen as like this like fringe genre that doesn't win awards at like <laughs> award shows for film and stuff like that it's becoming very um very like visceral and real and relatable there are some there is some good in this world right and mm-hmm. there is some sadness in this world and there is some horror in this world yeah and so to totally uh like not see horror the genre as like something that is viable mm-hmm. or something that you know that is not a valid uh, genre is a is a fallacy because yes. it captures something that we all feel in some way, shape, or form in this world. And um, yeah, I think you're right. I think horror is becoming less and less and less fringe by the day, by every film that comes out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why we talk about it here on Good Morning, Nancy. (laughs) 
<laughs> Follow us for more social events happening in the world and in horror at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. <laughs> Follow us for nightmares upon nightmares upon nightmares. <laughs> Oh, you were having a good day? <laughs> Just waking up in a cold sweat, screaming. <laughs> oh, you're having anxiety about something? <laughs> Let's talk Here's about a that. There's a movie that explains that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Well, that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Just a reminder to everybody, we are not doing a bi-weekly show we are doing a monthly show uh Mm -hmm. because abby and i are just too dang busy yeah i mean especially (laughs) abby abby's really busy i mean (laughs) it's okay it's okay but you know what every month we have an amazing episode for you uh it's i i mean our thing was we would rather have a solid like chef's kiss episode (laughs) once a month than have a rushed like lazily put together episode like every other week because we're so goddamn tired (laughs) right so this is for now this works for us and hopefully it works for you because i feel like you get better content (laughs) truly you get you know you get a nice home-cooked meal rather than McDonald's, which McDonald's is good sometimes. <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't want it every day. I mean, no. I don't. So no. anyway. Yeah. That's 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 my excuse. And if listen, if you want more content and you want us to make more episodes a month, Mm-hmm. You gotta join Patreon. You gotta. You got to. You gotta, you gotta give only... us the money. It's <laughs> the only way we're gonna have the resources <laughs> to make more episodes. So, yeah. Abby and I work really hard on this show. We don't have any help from researchers or editors. So, let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash Nancy. If Patreon isn't your deal, and that's totally fine, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more with our logo on it. So um, a link to our merch shop is in the show notes of this episode. So definitely check it out. Yes. And we know that times are tough right now. They've been tough for a really long time. And I know. I feel all... like that's been part of our ending for so long already. <laughs> I know. We're all we're <laughs> going through it. Away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so everybody likes free stuff, right? <laughs> yep. Depending on what it is. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, Meh. yeah. Technically, COVID is free. Nobody likes that. But we have better free stuff for you. Um, we have a free way to help the show, and that is by following us on social media Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy podcast so don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show please and thank you yes and don't forget black lives still matter 
trans lives still matter. Just because it's not in the news anymore doesn't mean it's not still an issue. So check out this episode's show notes to see how you can help out. We love you all to death. Thank you for listening. Have a good morning. Bye.